We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. You don't have to be 60, wealthy, you know, extraordinary, a mogul to have a story that's valid enough to be told. Right. And and I had to tell myself that through this process. I mean, my brother even over Christmas said to me, dude, Elaine, why are you writing a, why are you writing an autobiography? I love how your brother calls you dude. He's like, dude, yeah. And yeah, I, like, <laughs> even at this point in my career, I mean, at this point in my career, he's like the only person who will just chop me down to size real fast and just be like, he's like, well, dude, why are you writing an autobiography? Isn't that like something old people do? Wow. Like... Seriously, but you know, like, but 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 is he older, or younger brother? He's older than me, and he and he didn't mean it to be like hurtful. But, but he, he's but he's not understanding uh, the history of black literature, which is quite often your autobiography is the first book that you publish, and you may publish it in your twenties or your thirties or whatever. But like, I had to tell my story. You know, my name is Richard Wright. My name is uh, you know Claude Brown. My name is whatever. You know, uh, you know I had to tell my story first um, mm. before I could tell you anything else. Oh, that's so powerful. That when you put it like that, when you put this book, it, you know, it, in this like larger trajectory of black, black autobiography, literary, in the last yeah. hundred fifty years. Oh my god. Thank you. I'm gonna take oh that god. with me because I was should. like, my best comeback was in the moment. <laughs> they don't even call them autobiographies anymore. You <laughs> asshole. <laughs> and I just like burst into tears. So now I have a better, I can come back with some some weight on this. But no, I, I, I think that's powerful when you put it into perspective like that. Um, and I, I, I just think like, listen, you don't have to be, I, I, to me, later I realized, I was like, that's the patriarchy talking. You don't see the value yet mm. in the voice of a young black woman. And that's okay. You're not my audience. I'm not speaking to you. And I do think that's rule number one. Like, write for your audience. Elaine Welteroth is fierce and fabulous. She's got amazing hair, an incredible sense of style, intelligence, grace, humility, and class. She's the total package. That's why Anna Wintour chose her to become the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. Now, you might think the day you become the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue when you're 29 years old is one of the best days of your life, and it was. But behind the scenes, things were a hot mess. Today, you're going to hear the whole backstory, as well as what Elaine did when she was in the halls of Condé Nast that helped propel her to that top spot and how she handled herself while she was there. She's inspiring. She's amazing. She's the author of a great new memoir called More Than Enough, and she is way more than enough. It's my homie Elaine Welteroff 
on Torre Show. Part of what both of us have done is be able to go into super white spaces mm. and succeed mm-hmm. and carve out our own lane and our own, you know, come with our own personality mm-hmm. and succeed. Um, how did you do it? And what advice do you have for others who are like treading that road? Because it's hard. It is hard. And I don't think there's one blueprint or no. one like – there's no magical answer to that question. I think um, it's a journey to figure out how to be your authentic self, which we say all the time, again, these platitudes. Um, I think it's a journey to figure out who you are and what you have to say and how to say it in a way where people will listen to you, especially in predominantly white spaces as a as a black professional mm-hmm. um we you know that concept of double consciousness is very real mm-hmm. and very present every day mm-hmm. um and so i think the absolute saving grace for me and the best advice i can give is to build your tribe mm. whether it's at the office or outside of the office you need you need people who see you yes who you can um, who can serve as a sounding board for your ideas and um, who can support you behind the scenes because you won't always find that around the table. I mean, you'll be in a meeting or walking through the hall. Someone microgresses. You're pissed off. You can't do anything with that energy in the office. It's not productive. It's not productive. And, you, you know, and it's not big enough that you can go to HR. You right. can go to your boss. That And... You feel and good luck with HR. Good luck with HR, (laughs) and you feel. um, I would feel sort of like weak and like a loser, and like I had failed black people, Mm. but I didn't say anything. But if I'd said what I really want to say, I would have gotten fired. Yeah, you have to choose your battles. Yeah, that is enough. That's that is a key piece of advice. You have to choose your battles. There are some things that are worth the war, and other things. You got to take it home and grumble and strategize. I mean, when you're in the meeting and they and they say, so when is the editor in chief going to get here? Mm -hmm. And you have to delicately (laughs) take take that in, not insult her, politely let her know I'm the editor in chief, not embarrass her. because You still want to do the business with her, even though now you're like, right. How do you like, you know, I mean, how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, you could answer that, I'm sure. I'm sure you've dealt with that kind of thing so many times. And that's what's so, black people are so resilient. Mm -hmm. Our job is to take care of you. Mm -hmm. But it beats you down. And me. And even when you hurt me, I got to protect you. And we do it and still we rise, right? So, yeah, those kinds of moments happened to me. And I shared them in the book because I think it's important that People on both sides of those awkward exchanges see themselves in it. Mm-hmm. And and I th- I hope that people, the kinds of people who are on the other end of that awkward exchange, um, for me, like the, the kinds of people who put black folks in that position, I hope they read this book and I hope they can see themselves on the other side. And, and I hope that it increases the empathy and the understanding for what it feels like to be put in that position. We- but, but I also wanted yeah. to say, I feel like, I I also shared those moments because they're not proud moments for me. Like I would have ha- I would handle those kinds of microaggressive moments very differently now because I've found my voice and I think that So how would you handle it now? I think I would 
I think I would have. I, I think I would be less concerned with the other person's comfort now. Okay. And I don't think that it's my responsibility to take care of everyone in the room. And I think that actually sometimes those are opportunities. Um, th- those are opportunities for the for for the other person to experience the discomfort that they've created. What if it costs you the business? Well, you we're trying to do a deal, I'm right. trying to get hired, I'm trying to stay here, whatever it may be. Yeah. And you kind of tweak somebody because they've right. insulted you. You have to do you kind of have to take a breath and do a a quick you know, cost benefit analysis in your mind. Is this a war worth fighting or is this a little battle I got to grumble about later? Or do I say something after? I think tone matters so much. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just easier for you personally to, for your own psyche and for your own self-care to in the moment, just make it, make light of it, make people laugh and move on because sometimes that's a demonstration of real power. Mm, Interesting. And, um, I think, you know, so like the moment where I share in the book when the woman in the middle in the Midwest, all white office, I walk in and she says to me, oh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, You know, they've had you running all around here like a slave. Mm. And then all the oxygen in the room just evaporates. And and it just feels like a spotlight is on me. Right. What are you going to do? Right. And Trey, I'm sure you've been in this. A similar situation, maybe was maybe they didn't call you a slave, but no, you know that was that, but... a little overt. But in that moment, I and, and you know, I'm just like, what do I do here? What do I do here? I'm extremely uncomfortable. I'm gonna act like that didn't happen. Keep moving. Today, Elaine, 2019. There's no way I would not. There was no way I would handle it that way. How I would. Would you do now? I, today? I would. I would allow the pregnant pause to persist. <laughs> just I let her drown. Sit, I would just let her feel that one. I would just. We're gonna sit, sit in this. We're just gonna sit in this pregnant pause, and I'm gonna let you figure out what to say next. Right, right, right. I'm gonna turn the spotlight that's on me onto you. Right. And let's let you figure out how to get yourself out of the corner you put yourself in. Right. Versus me coming to rescue you. Right. So that I, I think there's like a, a paradigm switch that's happened but a paradigm shift that's happened but i it's it's not just because you know i've grown up and i've found my voice it's because also the world has changed so much even in the last five years mm-hmm. and the conversations that we're having are so different now than they were then about race mm-hmm. and about microaggressions and about representation diversity inclusion like we're finally having conversations where i think that white people in positions of power are more prepared to have these kinds of com- confrontations in the moment. And, and if they're not, they should be. They should the be. Because the conversations are in the ether. But, like, one of the things you talk about, you're, 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 you're doing the beauty work and you notice that the, the white woman doesn't know anything about black beauty standards. So it's like, I have to know your stuff. You're at this level. You don't have to know... I mean, surely there are black consumers of Teen Vogue and Vogue, and you're just what? What is it? Ten percent of of the readership is black, right? And you don't pay any attention to it. I mean, this is a significant group, right? and increasing, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's a perfect example of you know the kind of latent racism that we normalize in corporate America, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to shine a light on it so that we think more critically about that and go, oof. So, You're right. That is that ain't really right. That's not right. That's not right. I, sh- as a white beauty editor, should be expected to 
put myself in the position of my re- reader. And my reader is not exactly just like me. Right. Right. You know? And, and as a black editor, I have to do that every day. Right. 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 What are your rules for surviving and thriving in these white corporate spaces? Hmm. What What does Elaine... Auntie Elaine, Auntie E, tell the children <laughs> that they need to do. Auntie E, tell the children. Well, let's see. What have I already said? Because I think I, I think I want to recap too. Um, pick your battles. Pick your battles. Mm-hmm. Find your tribe. Find your voice. Don't save them. Oh yes. Don't save them. That's a good one. And. Um, I think I think we have to and this is going to sound like a platitude but I really think we need to own our power and okay. not wait for someone to give it to us. Okay. I think we don't I, I like I, sometimes we uh, so what I mean by that is we have been conditioned to assimilate in order to be accepted and to get promoted yeah. and to be heard and seen in these white spaces but what we need to remember is that we are bringing something valuable to every room that we step into and we are doing a disservice to the organization to the group that we're a part of if we're not bringing our full authentic self to the table our culture is rich Mm. and our perspectives are dynamic and they are missing from the conversation so part of your contribution requires you to lean into really who you are and to not leave it outside of the room just because you've been conditioned by our society to feel like it's not good enough, it's not worthy enough, it doesn't fit here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we, It's our responsibility to bring it in and bring it to the table. And it takes time to practice how to, how to figure out how to find your voice and how to insert your culture and to stand up for your people and all that stuff. It takes time to figure out how to do it right. But when you do, there's power in that. And Mm -hmm. actually the room, the culture of the room shifts when you decide to bring all of you. There's a great moment though, where, where you're struggling within something and you call a rich white man and he says, just do it. (laughs) And you're like, I'm uncomfortable doing that. And he's like, just do it. Right. Don't and think about what they're going to say. Right, right, right. And it's like... That's okay. a privilege. That's yeah, a privileged well, mindset. Yes, but I'm going to... We don't inherit but, that but from gonna, our parents. Right, right, right. We I'm are gonna, inherit gonna, the opposite. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do what the privileged white man would do right. and see what happens. Right. Right? And those allies are really important in those moments, <laughs> for sure. I was really... I remember coaching myself the night before a big negotiation, like, with this privileged, white, Jewish man... And he, you know, I was so nervous about asking for what I felt I deserved. And I, he just modeled for me complete confidence. Like, ask for what you think you deserve. Don't worry about what just they say. Just tell them a number. Just tell them the number. And I was just like, but what if, what if? And every time I said, what if, what if? And thinking about the other side, stop thinking about what they're going to say. Do it anyway. And imagine if we were raised with that. I mean, it would be delusional confidence for black folks to, but that is, I I, need, I wanted to borrow some of that. Yeah. I wanted to try some of that on from, for size and it wasn't easy. It's literally like unlearning everything you've learned as survival tactics yeah. as a black person, Yeah, you know? Um, 
but I think you got you. It's all a part of that umbrella of owning your power. Sometimes we have to borrow the privileged mindset and put it on and see how it works. I mean, it's, you, it, it, it's you've talked a lot today about your growth from the person who uh, you talk about in mm-hmm. the book. And there was a moment I had an interesting conversation with my wife um, because when you are offered the beauty director job at Teen Vogue, you said no. You, when I was offered the beauty, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. And you, you said, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready for this job. And I'm sitting there going, what is she talking about? What man in America get, has get, ever turned get, down? Right, just a, get in there and you'll figure title. it out. Right, because you bigger salary. You, I'm smart. I can read. I have friends. I can figure I it. Could I'll figure get in there out. and I'll figure it out. And my wife is like, "That's not how a woman would look at it." And I'm like, "That's not how we were socialized." Right, 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 right. Um, thankfully, you they they shove you into the job anyway. <laughs> right. Your career keeps ascending. But <laughs> mm-hmm. is that a young mindset would? And is there any job that Elaine now would say, I'm not ready, I'm going to say no, even though it's an amazing promotion? Would you, do you now feel like I can do anything? You know, I do feel like I have become friends with fear now, where Interesting. I don't, like, I don't require, like, an absence of fear to move forward into a challenge Good. the way I used to. Um but I do think that it's a part of the female experience to question yourself because of how we have been conditioned yep. um, for generations. And I and I just I, I'm just glad now that I have a network of women who I can turn to and say, I'm scared mm. and he and I'm doubting myself. And here's why. Am I crazy? Should I do this? What do you think? And on the other side, I, I have women who I respect and admire and who've done incredible, extraordinary things who can reflect my power back to me and check that check that self-doubt and help me push past it. And, and that's why I say having a tribe of women around you, women of color, if you are a woman of color, who see you and see your value and can remind you of it when you forget it. I think that's the thing. I don't think that we should, you know... There, there's there's a myth, I think, that in order to be successful and powerful as a woman, that you have to be fearless. I don't think fearlessness it's possible. is Not possible. I don't think it exists. I don't think yeah. it's real. I think that we all experience fear as humans. Yeah. Um, but it's about how you dance with fear and that relationship that you have with fear. And I think that can change Interesting. Um, over time. But I'm sure there are still opportunities that someone could present and I'd be like, Ugh. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Me? Now? Ah, I don't know. I think you could do anything. I want Thank you. I'll call you next time, you should When call... I next time I feel that, I'm going to call you. You should call me. You, you a lady well thrown. You could do anything, girl. What? Yes. <laughs> um, I want to talk about what, for me, is the central awesome story of the book. But before we get to how you got to Teen Vogue uh-huh. and be the head of Teen Vogue, there's so much in this book about hair. And the politics of hair oh, and the beauty true. of hair. And just before we start to dive into that, what is the hair care regimen? Because you are looking uh, fantastic <laughs> and fabulous again today. I mean, it's like this great well, lion's you. mane of like blonde and brown and curls. And like, <laughs> it, it, it's it's so, 
it's so modern and proud and right like you know black is beautiful angela davis but like modern and like so i love it i love the way you show up with your hair um thank you and 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 when you were introduced as the editor-in-chief of teen vogue and like Here's this picture. I mean, like, people were celebrating not just because a an African-American person had that job, but, like, mm-hmm. look, she's down. She's, like, all in. Look at this hair. Oh, my God. Um, and, and, and it was a huge source of pride for so many people. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't know who you were before you got the job, but mm. I was proud, too. Mm. Oh, my God. How did you find out? Oh, God. How I did it reach you? Know, you, you know crazy. how it reached me is I saw a tweet that said, and this is one of the greatest tweets ever, um, um, <laughs> the person said, uh, most of the, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, most of the media, most of the media, colon, how do we deal with Trump? Teen Vogue, hold my beer. And I was like, <laughs> Teen Vogue? What? And then I started Googling, like, oh, shit, Elaine, oh, shit, she's awesome. Like, wow, look at this. Uh, oh, my God, Teen Vogue is making people proud. Oh, my God. Wow. So that's how it started. For me, but uh, what is the hair care? It is so funny, by the way, to hear a man's perspective on hair, like on on a a woman's hair, and the fact that you're even remarking on it. I'm like, your your wife trained you well. (laughs) I think I was into hair before her. Oh, Um, you trying to? Oh, you trying to? You trying to take credit for this? Well, no, I mean, like you know, I mean, look, you know, I'm born 1971, right? I grew up right watching certain person dance with his brothers and sisters. So it's like, you know, mm. big hair was like super important and valuable. And right. like, I mean, you know, my dad always, my dad was gray from when he was 18, right? But he had this great afro, right? So he stood out because mm. he has this gray afro, even though he's 40 or 50 or whatever he's going through. Um, that's so, amazing. That's iconic. Yeah. No, it, it, it really was like way before he should have been gray. Um and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to have as much hair as I possibly yeah. can. Wait, are you mi- mixed race? I am not. My father was lighter than you are, um, but I'm not mixed. Okay. But he had a big gray afro. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That's kind of great. So let's see. What's the question? My hair. I think it's so interesting. I think there's always, first of all, we know that black hair is extremely politicized. Mm-hmm. So by default, it becomes an extension of your identity as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And for me, looking back over my career, it's like it's it's almost mirrored my journey um, of getting acquainted with myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there have been times where it's like where I feel like I've had to shrink and my hair shrinks along with me. Mm. And then there are times where I feel powerful and strong and, and my hair reflects that and it's mm-hmm. big and mm-hmm. and, and I, like throughout my Teen Vogue trajectory in particular it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and now it's just huge and I think it really does it, it's sort of it's weird you don't think about it consciously of course but it is sort of it is about taking up space and it is about uh, kind of claiming claiming kind of like What's yours is enough. It's saying what's mine, what I was born with is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it kind of it, it's one of those things that's like you you train people, you train people how to treat you, you train people how to see you, you train mm. people how to interact with you by how you show up, and by saying by walking to the room with my natural hair, it's like this is I'm on a I am unapologetic, and and you will not touch it. 
Mm. And, you know, like there are certain rules of engagement with natural hair. And Did you think about straightening it to go uh, into teen vogue? I definitely interviewed with it slicked back into a tight little bun. That okay. was my interview hair. Okay. Black girls know about the interview hair. Yeah. It is different from the everyday hair. Oh, no doubt. Because you're not sure what you're dealing with. So you go in and you go with the safe hair just in case it distracts from your resume. And so, you know, exp- coming through the th- coming up through the ranks at Glamour in particular, I felt like that was a part of my career where I was really like, I was like... A, she she was assimilating. She was wearing khakis and pearls, and you know I was kind of keeping my hair in a tight bun. Of course, I still wore my curls, but it, I was just much more conscious of, you know, the way I looked and what that might communicate, and, mm. and um, wanting to be safe and approachable and all that kind of stuff. And it just sort of over time, as I got comfortable with myself and what I had to say in the world as a journalist, um, as a storyteller, it just kind of went out the door. And I was just like, the bigger and the better. I just, yeah. When you said assimilating. It is particularly big today. Well, what is the the regiment? Oh, yeah, the regiment. Well, actually, my regiment is I do not shampoo my hair. Okay. Actually, I... I, As a rule? Very rarely. Unless I have a ton of product buildup, then I usually don't shampoo with a traditional shampoo. Okay. I... And this is not novel for anyone who has natural hair, so I'm not trying to pretend like this is like something you've never heard before. But I co-wash. So I wash my hair with a conditioner, and I finger comb it in the shower. Okay. Um, and then I use Diva Curl Styling Cream. That is my go-to. That is my that is the singular product I use. I am very low maintenance when it comes to my hair. I do not have a lot of time to be dealing with it. So I use this one product. I put it all through my hair whenever I do rinse it and do the whole co-washing thing, which, by the way, is like an Olympic sport. <laughs> it takes so much time. My arms are burning. How it depends it on how long I've waited. And I have a bad, I have a tendency of letting it go a little bit too long. And the kitchen is, it is, it is hot back there. <laughs> right. You know, like you can't really put your fingers through. Sometimes I have some dreadlocks forming in the back. Oh, no doubt. So if I let it go too far, it takes a really, really, really long time. My but arms you don't want to like separate it too much because that's not but a yeah, good look either. Yeah. And like, I also will say first and second day are not, I mean, those are, those are the boring days. Like your hair is just, it's almost too springy and flat. I love it when it's a little bit dirtier. Uh-huh. I love it when it's like fourth day, uh-huh. third, fourth day, because I like a little frizz. I like when it's big. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. 
Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We'll get back to the show in one second, but I want to give a shout out to longtime supporter of the show, Policy Genius, who's here to make your life insurance needs more simple and easy. It's a one-stop shop for shopping for insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from all the top insurers and find the best price. And when you have quality life insurance that you can afford, you can sleep at night knowing if something happens to you, your family will be taken care of. And that's the most important thing, knowing that your family is taken care of. And that's what Policy Genius is here to do. They'll take care of all the paperwork and all the red tape. There's no sales pressure. There's no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They can help you with home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance, whatever. You need insurance to make sure that if the worst thing happens to you, it won't be the worst thing. Look, you need life insurance. I know it's boring. I know it's not exciting, but it's important. It lets you sleep at night. It lets me sleep at night. So go to policygenius.com, compare all the top insurers, do it quickly, get it done, and go back to doing whatever it is you really love to do. Policygenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for life insurance, so they made it easy. The central story for me in this book that really leapt off the page um, that I really underlined this just really powerful story was when you are getting the editor-in-chief job mm -hmm. at Teen Vogue. And from the outside, it was like, oh, my God, coronation, so exciting, yay. <laughs> but it was extraordinarily emotional and complex for you. Can you tell the story of what happened and how you're feeling as you're going through it? Because it's, it's a heavy sort of corporate moment. Mm -hmm. Well, we love a celebration We as a culture. We love first. to see first. We love to see each other win, and I think that's great. Um, I love to see my sisters win, too. Um, but I think 
we often therefore do not feel like there's space to talk about the underside of dreams realized as black people who are first. Um, or as Shonda Rhimes says in her book, um, first only different FOD. Um, I think when the conversation ends at the celebration, it, it leaves those who are in these roles to feel isolated Mm. because there's, but only so much space to, to, uh, there's only so much of the story that gets told, right? And you're meant to just be grateful and make the best of it and be excellent. Work four times as hard as the next person in that role. And you just do the work. That's sort of the mandate for somebody who is first only indifferent. And I learned that, that I learned that, you know, um, it, for for me, when I got this job, you know, I had been working at Teen Vogue for a while. We had been doing some really kind of culture shifting work that was resonating and there was momentum building. And we were so all of us at, at Teen Vogue were really proud of the work that we were putting out into the world. Um, and so when I got promoted, it, it, there was this interesting moment where it was there was a duality to the to this experience for me, um, you know, what the public saw is that I got this great promotion. Teen Vogue promoted this young black girl to run it. And it was the youngest, youngest editor in yeah. Conde history. Yeah. All that. And she's black. Yes. And she's... It's a win for the culture. Yes. And, you know, and black Twitter, you know, went off. It, everyone was so excited. You saw the tweet and, yeah. you know, my phone blew up. But behind the scenes, there was another reality that I was living where certainly I was excited about getting this opportunity, especially at a moment where there was so much momentum and there was so much work to be done. And I felt like this was my, my job to have. There was so much for me to say. And yet, um, you know, when I was offered the opportunity, it came with sort of, it felt like I was put in a compromising position um, because I was offered it alongside two other people who mm. we'd been working together. and So it's going to be a tripartite a, leadership something thingy. Right. And it was sort of like, you know, sign, sign this form. We're going to announce this in 40 minutes. And there's no and there negotiation. Was no oppor- you know, no, no opportunity talking to about it. There was, yes. It was, it was, so it was tricky. Um, and you say you weren't thrilled with the salary bump. I'm the editor-in-chief now. This is not... What? This is it? Supposed to be more than this? Yeah. And I think what that... Uh, in the moment, I, I I didn't have... I wasn't prepared with the tools to to be able to negotiate for myself or to even know how to handle that situation. Um, I certainly wanted the opportunity. I was certainly grateful for the opportunity. But the circumstances around that opportunity put me in an uncomfortable position and um, I was sort of put in this spot where it was like, take it as it is or leave it. And you have like 40 minutes to figure that out. And, um, you know, the press release is going to go out one way or the, e- either way the press release will go out with your name or without your name. And it was sort of this, like sort of a re- like it was a it it put me it 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 was so surprising for me and I felt shocked and I didn't know how to handle it and I think I did my best to try to advocate for myself but ultimately I realized that the 
the opportunity in front of me was something I couldn't pass up. So I was going to do what black women have done for generations. And I was going to make lemonade. And I was going to have to prove over time that that I was valued, actually more valuable than maybe they recognized up front. You and think a white girl would have been given a different package or different who, opportunity? You know, who will ever know? Right. But what I think the point of me sharing it is to expose that this is not something that happens only at Condé Nast or in right. the media world or to me. Right. This is something that happens all the time, every day, in every industry. Um, I think there also are some sort of there's there's it's a systemic issue. Black women often are underpaid and overworked and underestimated, especially in leadership roles. We know that and we know the stats about the wage gap. But we we rarely talk about the like anecdotally do we talk about how it happens Mm. and. You know, when I was in this position, I knew the stats, but I still was shocked that it was happening to me. <laughs> and I still didn't have the tools to be able to navigate it in a, in a way that made me feel powerful. Yeah. So I, you know, I, but, but behind closed doors, when I talk to any woman of color who's in a leadership role, they are not surprised. They've been put in similar positions. And yet there's almost this like cone of silence around the shame of what it feels like to be in that position. And so we essentially protect the companies and the power structures that put us in these positions by silencing ourselves. And so I feel like, I, you know, it, it put me in a really awkward position where I was being celebrated by my community right. for breaking through a glass ceiling. Yeah, But I didn't have the space to say... This hurts. Mm. It comes with bruises and scars and cuts, and it's not fun. And it's it always. I didn't have the space to do that, and so now I feel like I owe it to the next generation to crack open these harder conversations so that they are more prepared when this happens, because it will happen because it's a systemic problem. So if if your mentee Keisha called you, why she got be Keisha? Because just we know she's a black girl. Hey, Keisha. And and she's like, can we call her Kiki? Sure. Do, do, do you, you love, love me? me? Are <laughs> and you she's riding? like, Auntie Elaine, like you know, they just gave me an incredible job, right? But they did not give me the money, right? Or the power, right? Or the corner office, or all the stuff that goes with it. But right. the rest of the world's gonna think this is amazing, right? Basically. If Elaine called you from that room right. saying they gave me a crappy offer, but the job is amazing, what would you tell her? What should she do? What does current Elaine understand that she should have right. done in that moment, if anything? Right. Because perhaps there's nothing I can do. Right. Well, oh, one thing I'll say is because it happened to me and because of how I handled that responsibility, because of where I, what I did with that role – and be, and now because I'm writing this book and telling the story, the backstory, that girl won't even need to call me. Right. She will know. Right. First of all, this happens. Second of all, if I decide to move forward with this, I can, I can reclaim my power in this mm. 
and my community's response is going to be a part of that, which I want to speak to that a little bit because kind of the I, – there's so much I have to say about this. So the other part of this is that the world has changed so much since then that there is an understanding now of the value of the black audience who's watching. Is there really? Yes. Are you okay. kidding? Black mm-hmm. Twitter? No one wants to be on the wrong side of black Twitter. Sure. So so I think when, you know, when I was when I got my promotion, um I don't think either of us expected the black Twitter audience ecos, ecosystem. Yeah. To a find out, b react the way they did. Okay. But because Essence magazine broke the story, and with the headline, uh, I think it's Black Girl Magic, uh, it was a Black Girl Magic Alert, and it was like Elaine Weltroth became the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, and we all rejoiced, something like that. Right. It immediately elicited this massive viral celebration of black folks that mm-hmm. were rising up and saying, really did. this matters to us. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, sis. Like, all this support came pouring in mm-hmm. that was I wasn't expecting, and certainly the institution wasn't expecting, and in this powerless moment where I felt like I was being stuck into a situation that was really compromising, I saw this response from my community lifting me up, affirming me, and it gave me my power back Mm. in a moment where I felt powerless, Um, and it made me reflect and remember that I'm here representing them. I'm here actually on the inside working for all of us on the outside. And that gave me power. I think as women, it's harder to advocate for ourselves than it is to advocate for others. Mm -hmm. And when, but when you remember that you're walking into the room and you're, you're representing thousands of people who are, are, who've never been spoken to directly in the way that you can in this role it empowers you to ask for what you deserve or what you feel you deserve. And so there was this, there was this moment where, like, I, I just realized, wow, there is something really – there was something about that moment that, that, that I think I learned. I learned that black culture comes with a currency that – we sometimes we sometimes discount like even at, mm-hmm. but when 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 those voices came in i cannot tell you it gave me it gave me leverage it gave literal leverage to yeah. walk back into the room and say we need to negotiate we need i need space to negotiate this and if i didn't how can i possibly talk to all these how can i possibly make this look good and be the sort of token black hire for for all these folks who are who are looking at me and celebrating this, like it, it's it's it was something that it, I felt like I had to do. I had to go back in and negotiate that, and it got marginally better. But with that, it got marginally better. <laughs> but you, I, ultimately, you, it was the work that that it was the work that ultimately the the company had to realize mattered and was valued more. And a year later, I eventually got the title and the corner, and office, the corner and, office and the the full package that you know I. I, I felt was more like commensurate. A token? Certainly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I That's did. hard. I did. It was hard. It is hard to be the only one. It is hard to be first, but it's not, you know, I think our, it comes with a, a great opportunity too. Um, 
because you can open the door and make sure that there's a second and a third. And now there is. And the next in the next editor in chief who came after me is a young black woman who was even younger than I was when I got the job. And so to me, that's the true marker of success. The you, culture has shifted and and there's space for more than just me. You kind of reference some of the tension that I've been dealing with throughout my media career that I go into Rolling Stone, MSNBC, wherever and feel like I am representing the culture. Mm. So, you know, you got to be on your game, mm. you know, and bring in our issues. But I don't want to be a spokesperson for the culture because that is uh, minimizing. And it suggests one person can be the spokesperson. And I can know what, you know, I wrote a book about the complexity of black people. So I can't say black people feel like X, Mm-mm. right? Um, so it's been that sort of push and pull of, how do I represent the culture? But then also it has to be me and it has mm-hmm. to be authentically me and what I believe. And I can't just say such and such because right. the culture wants to hear that. Right. Oh, my gosh. I've been there. And that's that goes to the earlier point that I was making about, you know, it takes time to figure out how to speak, quote unquote, on behalf of your community mm. while also being true to yourself and also getting shit done in the system. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, that part of actually doing the job and crushing it. Right, So, you know, it's it's a journey. And there's that other story that I shared about learning the hard way when you're trying to negotiate these things um, and and you make a wrong calculation and then the very community that you feel like you're there representing gets mad at you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) You know, mm -hmm. it's like we walk as... Black people in white organizations, we are walking this tightrope every day. Well, you talk about this story where you bring in the cornrows, right? You bring bring in the black hair, <laughs> but you put it on a mixed model who did not read black to others, right? And you 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 flog yourself for not putting dark skin women mm-hmm. in it, which would have made it clear what your intention was. Sure. And I think a lot of people didn't quite understand that. It was a black woman behind all this. But in a larger sense, I, I, I cringe most of the time that we talk about cultural appropriation. And I think there are definitely times when it is serious and we need to call it out and we need to have recognition. And we need to be seen, right? But there's a lot of times when it's so petty and the least little thing and we want to run around screaming appropriation. And if we were as mad about Flint as we are about appropriation, they would have clean water. If we were as mad about, Preach. you know, about police violence in L.A., we would, that would be solved as we are. But I mean, like, I'm like, Preach. Really? Like, again, with the appropriation? Come on, guys. Yeah. It's not that deep. You know, it's interesting. I don't think we realize that it's generational privilege that allows mm. us the space to even address the issue of cultural appropriation. Yes. yes. It is an intellectual argument. Yes. And I am not uh taking away from this, you know, this push. I think it's I think it is an important thing to address. Um I, that being said, you know, I get I get checked by my mother mm. who's like, "Girl, cultural what?" <laughs> right, right, right. I, w- I didn't have time to worry about right. who was wearing braids. Right. I was trying to keep my job. Right. So 
y'all new these new blacks you know she's just like this new generation new y'all, negroes these new negroes you know it, it, it i so i understand like i, I just think we need to put things into perspective mm-hmm. and remember where we came from and remember the struggles of the civil rights era mm-hmm. and really put cultural per- appropriation in perspective like i as long as we're contextualizing it and giving it the appropriate weight, you know, versus I think sometimes we get into this position and it makes sense when you're, when you've been in a powerless position for generations and finally you're in a position of policing those who've been policing you, your body and your families and your, you know, your whole, your lineage has been policed by white folks since forever. So now I'm in a position to police you right, and right, to tell you right. you don't get to wear your hair like this and right. here's why. Right. And oh, I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with it. And I think there is a little bit of that sometimes in the whistleblowing that we do mm. on Instagram. I mean, on, on and social media. Everywhere, yeah. You know, and we live in cancellation culture. We love a cancellation. Even I said earlier, we love a celebration, but we love a cancellation even more. And we love to be able to call someone out. And I just think... <sighs> Sometimes we have to refocus ourselves on what the real movement is about, where we're really going, and and what is our what is our focus? And we need to be all we need to be we need to align on it because if sometimes I think what it, how we come across is just angry, yeah. and when that is when that's the perception, I don't think that we're moving anyone towards. I, I don't think we're. I don't think we're. I don't think we're gaining momentum in our movement. <laughs> we're, mm, we're not just, with that. Not, not with that. that. Not, not with, with that. that. No. But I. But it's it's complex. Like, listen, cultural appropriation is a complex issue, and I'm not trying to uh, say that it isn't important. I it, think it's it, important there, at there, times. There, I, I think, think there are sometimes when we call it out and it's accurate and appropriate. But I think quite often we we use that stick too much, and we should focus on other. You talk about cancellation. Culture, I thought it would be a lot easier and quicker to cancel Michael Jackson, and a lot of people are fighting against it. Like, they just, they, I don't want it. I don't, I'm not getting, like, you don't know, you weren't there. I'm like. Can I tell you how deflated I feel about this issue within our own community? Right, right. I, I mentioned right. my mom, by the way, my mom is like the hero of this book. Once yeah. you read this book, you're like, Elaine's cool, but her mom is yeah. a hero. I love her. So I love my mom, and I'm not throwing her under the bus when I say this, but even my mother refuses to watch the documentary. Mm. And that's hard. That's hard for me. And I do think this is, again, a generational thing where I think my our parents' generation really needed these black heroes I mean, we to be heroes. as a millennial and, and even as a Gen Xer, we cannot understand the civil rights movement thing that he was bringing forward when the Jackson Five was stepping. I mean, that was like a major moment in politics as well as culture. Absolutely, that we don't understand. We were not there. We did not right. need that. Um, but I can't. I can't. We're not ready to even. They're not ready. What what kinds of conversations are you having with black people about? It's, Michael Jackson it's, right now. It's, it's either left or right. Right. It's either, yeah. Either you're ready to face it yeah, or you're not. Yeah, man, that documentary was insane. Oh, my God, he's a monster. Or, no, nah, I don't believe that. That's bullshit. Like, some white man told you, like, what? No. What are you talking about? Like, and just rejecting. Right. And 
there's this knee-jerk rejection. Yes. And it's the same thing. And they want to pivot to, and where's the Harvey Weinstein doc? I'm like, uh, what does that matter? What does that have to do with anything? Like, this is one of those issues where race does not actually play a role. Right. And I think it's hard for some black people to recognize that, you know, like, race doesn't always, isn't always, um, like, a part of the equation. And, like, I, I really think it's the same mindset that a lot of black people had during the OJ era. Mm. <laughs> where well, now it's it, different because OJ didn't do it. Uh, uh, so you, okay. <laughs> no, so you brought it that let me era. Say, let me okay. say, no, 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 so no. I'm kidding. You I'm just kidding. showed I'm your kidding. age. I'm you kidding. just showed I'm your kidding. age, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, 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 when I was at MSNBC, I used to torture all, because I was the only black person on the team, I used to torture them by saying, he he didn't do he got off. He was acquitted. What are you talking about? And you know, just culturally, colloquially, we just say, well, of course OJ did it. I'm right. like, he was acquitted. Like, what are you talking about? And they right. were like, is he serious? Is he joking? So we don't you were know. just messed with we him. We are triggered that he's even you and I'm like mess with him. He That's... was acquitted. I don't know. You believe in that the justice right, system, Tori. but here you go. Oh, I loved it. That was, the God best. Don't that like was so ugly. much fun. It was so much fun. God don't like ugly. But that that actually <laughs> He got his. He paid. He yeah. paid his bill. Yeah. Mm. But it, it, that was an interesting social experiment in my household. Mm-hmm. I was th- in third grade when that happened, and um, I only understood it through the lens of my parents at the dinner table sure. in their conversation. And, yeah. you know, I have a black mother and I have a white father, and the the they were very clearly on two different sides of this great debate. Mm, really? Yes. And my dad was just, who's very you know, fact-oriented, is just like, that he did it. He is guilty. Mm-hmm. End of story. Mm-hmm. And my mom comes from a generation of black people who have seen, we've seen black, I mean, this isn't, this isn't even just generational. We've, we see this today every day. But so many black men are screwed by this system. Yeah. And so my mom's perspective was sort of, if we got one. Right. Right. Who didn't, right. who got off. Right. Right. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at it. Right. 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 And I was right. just, it's sort yes. of, it's like we we have a different understanding of what defines justice, mm-hmm. I think. And so on some level, to, to a lot of people, that, that, that represented a moment where like justice was not served. But for a lot of black folks, OJ represented justice. Yeah. Oh, OJ yeah. getting off oh, represented yeah. justice for black oh, yeah. people. Totally. And it's something I don't think a lot of white people can wrap their head around. No. They're like, look at the facts. Right. You know? No. no look no, at these facts. No. So so anyway, as we as it relates to Michael Jackson, I think it's like b- black people just have a really hard time looking at like they're a fallen hero, a fallen black hero. They just can't accept. I mean, we have been trained to love him since, yeah. you know, the, the early beginning 70s. Of time. Early, late, uh, you know, the thing that kills me is, um, you know, I'm out here rooting for everybody black. I didn't even know that Jordy Chandler was black. Like, I didn't mm. know. Like, right. I didn't know. And why he, aren't we rooting for Jordy? Yeah. Right, why right. Like, why wasn't I showing up for Jordy? for showing like, up for black, little black he, boys. And he killed himself because the pain was so much. And I didn't even know. I wasn't even it's showing up for him. We are just like, well, Michael said, so let's keep marching. Let's keep going. Like, I didn't even know. I didn't even bother to <sighs> and know. And now that kind of, I mean, Jesse Smollett. What about him? It, this is we're, It's all a part of the same conversation. Rooting for everybody black yeah. is what led so, what so you, many people. So what you saying about Jesse? What you saying about Jesse? I, I'm, Which saying, part that, I'm saying he didn't do nothing. What you saying? So, so yeah. So okay. Here we go. <laughs> Are we gonna go there? Would you what? Well, I'm saying. 
First of all, you, I will say you we, wanted to pay Chicago we, for wasting we their have, time. No, we have way we have many many more reasons to question the motives of the Ch- CPD. Chicago PD, absolutely. Than we do Jesse and black sites. And I think that the narrative that we've been fed is from the perspective of the CPD, and 100%. we've been and and I think we don't. And they, ha- they were coming out doing. Uh, preaching and editorials and press conferences and la- I'm like this doesn't seem like a police presentation you seem like a political presentation that you're trying to rally people against Jussie like you extra when in the history sir. of ever have you ever seen right. the CPD do this much work right. <laughs> this quickly and 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 work so hard publicly to sort of make themselves seem like they're they have, they have no fault. Like Chicago is like, like I think they want us to they wanted they wanted to vilify Jesse. And I think that was the that was the and to me that was a red flag. What right. and and also just stick to the crime. Just you don't stick have to, to the destroy crime. him. And also, yes. And and like the thing is that we've been told there's evidence. But what evidence? We haven't been told what the evidence really is. And it, I don't even. There's. This is like a whole other talk so show. You think, but what I will say is, you, until you, do you believe the Chicago PD's narrative that he? No, I believe that Jesse's innocent until proven right guilty. Right. And Although I don't know why he's wearing a noose hours later. What did he do? He's wearing the noose hours later. Like, why are you still wearing it? Like, come well, on, but man. there's. I under, I don't know. I listened to his Good Morning America interview, and while some people saw that and and thought, oh God, he's not credible. He's lying. He's clearly lying. I looked at it, and I thought, I understand where he's coming from. Mm. To me, he felt more credible after watching that interview. And I understand why, if this happened to you, and it's a hate crime, and it's one that's so hard to believe because it's so extreme, you want to, you want to, you're going to show up to the police station or to the hospital with as much physical evidence as mm. you can okay. to support the story. But why wouldn't you would just you... rip it off? Somebody put a noose on my neck, I'd rip that off. Like yeah, no. no. I, I mean understand. I see your point. I see your point. Yeah, like you're you gonna you're gonna show them what you look like directly after the attack mm. versus why you wouldn't go take a shower, get rid of all the evidence. Get rid of it. Mm-hmm. No, go mm-hmm. in and show what it looked like. I mean, you'd have to be really truly out of your mind to orchestrate this level of an attack on yourself. Right. In the public eye. Right. And I just think that, you know, I, I we we are not that many degrees. There's there aren't many degrees of separation between myself and Jesse. We know many people in common, and I feel like we would have heard one degree. He was on the show. He was on the show. Okay, so I, you tell me what your character assessment is, but I have not heard from anyone that Jesse was crazy or no. a crazy intention seeker no. or someone who's delusional or someone who lies a lot. Like none of that. If that has not come forward, then I have. I'm sorry, but I have more reasons to distrust the CPD than I do Jesse. But at the same time, right? And I'm rooting for everybody black, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ride for Jesse until you give me a really, really, really good reason. Oh no doubt, no doubt. To I'm get not, off I'm, I'm, I'm with that him. bandwagon. I'm on his side. I feel like public opinion among black people has largely come down against him. I like do too. Chris Rock, like Chris Rock, drive by like. I'm not calling you Jesse no more. Like, whoa. What's and he going to call him? Jesse. <laughs> I mean, right. it's stupid, but, you know, right. Rock and his position in the culture, and for him to, like, you know, have a little weight. drive-by joke, like, like, 
that. And I do think that reflects a problem in our culture because, you know, I I I root for everybody black until they get canceled and then I'm jumping right off. Like we are so quick to get on a bandwagon and even mm. quicker to jump off. Mm. And so it's like, is this loyalty that we feel towards each other real? Mm. Is this, I, I feel like we owe it to Jesse to ride this out with him. And I was really actually kind of hurt when I saw how quickly people turned on him just because the headlines shifted. Yeah. Like, as a journalist, I know how easy it is to manipulate public opinion yeah. with a headline. Yeah. yeah. And when you have a, mo- a motive behind that, it's it's just, I, 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 really, I really have a hard time with the clickbait culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. And with this idea that we don't think for ourselves, we mm-hmm. would just, we, we sort of blindly retweet. We just retweet. Mm-hmm. What we what we see on Twitter without mm-hmm. forming our own opinions and without thinking about the counter narrative and without, you know, having more nuanced conversations. It, it, not everything is black and white and not everything is as you're told. And I, I think we need to be more critical of the information that we are being fed every day. And that's from Jesse to what's coming out of the Trump administration we have to be more critical about what we're about the information that we're being fed. So Let's take a step back yeah. into your career because because mm-hmm. now we're all deep, deep, deep. <laughs> but on, I know, on, but on I a lo- left turn. But I love that. Jesse's but you, Avenue. you, we're magazine people, and yeah. you worked for and with one of the great legendary editors of all time. What'd you learn yeah. from Anna Winter? I learned how to be decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned how to be clear with feedback, and I learned how to be uh, extreme, like ruthlessly uh, protective of my time in order to maximize efficiency. Like that woman's schedule, she gets more done in a day than Beyonce. <laughs> She's so economical with her words. Okay, the agency's gonna get you, but it I was know, nice knowing I know, you. I know, I know, right? <laughs> Come for me, y'all. Um, it wasn't a diss. Right. It's not a diss. Okay. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Oh, God. But, <laughs> don't come for me, y'all. Don't come for me, Black Twitter. But um, she's just really, I, I don't think that Anna gets enough credit for just how open-minded she actually is mm. and um, how creative she is and uh, how how open to new ideas and young voices she is. I mean, I get a lot of credit for the transformation of Teen Vogue, but listen, I would not have been able to do half of what ha- what I did and what our team did, really, without the support of someone at the top who gave a space to experiment and to flip the, the, the model on its head and to do things that we no magazine speaking to young people had ever done before, and so I give her a lot of credit for that. Um, she's she's a fierce leader, and um, I, she's she made me a better leader mm. for having worked with her. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, toward the end of the book, you talk about you came to New York, you came to your professional life with this mindset of bite off more than you can chew and just chew the hell out of it. And I think that's definitely been my mindset. I always have five, six, seven projects that I'm doing at once. I cannot get everything done. I feel like the plate is overflowing and there's overwhelm, but like you plow through it because that's the way it is. But you really are open with yourself about this is too much. I am burned out. This is not fun. I want to be chewing as much mm-hmm. as I can eat or just, mm-hmm. or, you know, just, just taking it down to like a reasonable level, mm-hmm. um, which is not yet where I am well, as a person. I don't know if I'm there either, but I've, <laughs> I've definitely changed the mantra. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I forgot to say Anna's really funny, by the way. Really? To finish that. I don't think she gets credit for being funny. Give she's a funny Anna story. She's just like, I she remember. She funny. She's ice queen. She's, she's not as icy as she is depicted. She really isn't. Funny. She, I just remember this one time where we were, um, our wellness editor at the time, Vera Papasova, shout out to Vera, she's a genius, um, and she was really behind a lot of some of those award-winning stories that we did and pushing us into some more, uh, more radical intersectional feminist space. Like she's amazing. So, and, but, you know, so she would present certain ideas that then I carried into the big boss and she had an idea about um, tackling female masturbation and telling sort of like a a sort of a historical retrospective of female, female masturbation. And um, so I had to go in to talk to Anna and I think it's so crazy because now that might not even be jarring or shocking to people. um, But you know, five years ago, mm. talking to Anna about female masturbation and putting it in Teen Vogue wasn't exactly the easiest conversation to have, you know, especially shortly after being given the reins and I'm this young black girl, you know, one would think you should play it safe for a little while. But, right. but you know, I went into this meeting thinking, how am I going to say the word masturbation in front of Anna Wintour? And we were <laughs> we were all like... Oh, we were all like, it was funny going into it. But I, so I finally, I got the courage and I, and I, I pitched it to Anna. And you say she, the word? 
I said the words. I said the words. And she just, without flinching, without blinking, she just said, well, I don't see why not. Men have been doing it forever, talking about it. It's fine by me. And I wish I had a British accent to really be able to land that, but right, I, I have right. a terrible British accent, so I'm not even going to do that to myself right, right now. Right, 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 but right. The, but, the, but, but I think that in and of itself, that like that share, that sheds light on just how open-minded she is. She's, she's cooler than you give her, than she's been given credit for. And we ran the story, and she it, it, those, those kinds of stories that we did, we would not have been able to do without someone at the top, a leader saying, sure. I'm much more comfortable asking the questions right. than I am answering them. And this has been a really interesting transition for me going from behind the scenes to in front. Um, and even, you know, I'm much more comfortable telling my story in a written form. Mm -hmm. um, y you know, it's harder for me to talk about this book. And so I'm really kind of grateful that my first interview, my first podcast interview is with you and mm. that you you know you create a safe space also that you're you are a black male journalist there's a lot of stuff in this book thematically that i'm sure oh yeah on some level you relate to and What's so i the, feel the, the, safer yeah the white space struggle the magazine struggle i mean all that is just so near to my heart and so much of this i really related to and was admiring you for putting out into the world and it's a beautiful book Thank it you. Feels like we're coming to the end, but we're not yet. Okay, okay. But seriously, coming from you, that means a lot. Like you used the word extraordinary. Like you used the word beautiful. I mean, it that is. means I could. I didn't even know you read the book when I walked in, and you said like, "Oh, I read about that." Oh hell yeah! Oh yeah! I read the book. <laughs> Torrey read my book. Hell yeah! No, it, it 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 is it is warm and welcoming and inspiring. And giving and real. You do that thing of like, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to tell you about how I had to pee all well. the time because I had a condition. And people in the office were teasing me about it. I'm keeping it extra real. I'm keeping like, it extra funky. I mean, you know, you could have told the story about like, you know, I got the job at t Fog. It was great. But it's like, eh, but there was this other side to it that was really hard too. And you're like, I'll show you my warts. And mm -hmm. that's a beautiful thing. But what what is driving you? What do you, what do you want people to think about you why are you doing all this stuff like what do you mm. want them to say about you i don't know if i've i don't know if i operate with that in mind good i i don't think about what th people think about me well, what do you want to think about you that i'm being true to my call that i'm answering my call i think all you know i one of my favorite books is the alchemist and mm. you know Paolo Coelho says in the book, I'm paraphrasing, but our only obligation is to actualize our dreams. And mm. and I think our dreams are actually callings. And I think they're actually divine. And and they're we're put here on assignment, all of us. And I you know, I I don't wanna see I don't wanna live my life um on the other side of my calling. I don't want to I don't want to ever wonder what would have happened if I was brave enough to be obedient to this big call mm. on my life. And so I'd rather answer it, heed it and 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 be led. You know, I don't do anything. I'm not super strategic in the sense that I'm I don't think about a 5-year plan. No. Um I'm I'm I would have thought that I'm you driven. did. No, I'm driven, but I'm I'm, you know, it's interesting. I'm, 
I'm less driven than I am led. Does that make sense? Like, I feel led to do things. Okay. And I don't really do, there's not a lot that I do that I don't feel called to do. Um, this book wrote itself in me, and I had to share it. Okay. You know, it wasn't like, well, now I must build my brand. Yeah. So I must write the book. Yeah. I must have a message, and I must get it out there. And this is my new platform. Like, no. I'm not strategic in that way. Um, there is sort of a kind of an organic flow. And I talk about this actually in that same burning out chapter. Like, there is hustle and, there's flow. and there is flow. Yeah. And you must have one. You can't have one without the other. Um, if you want to have a sustainable sort of run with success, it's a marathon. And so, so yeah, I feel like I'm in my flow and I want to stay in my flow. That's my goal is to stay in flow. And actually when I met Oprah, I interviewed Oprah last year. No, I'm not trying to drop a bomb. I'm not trying to drop a name drop. No, no, no. We're in media. It's not name dropping, but just what an amazing sentence. When I I met Oprah, when I interviewed Oprah. What an amazing sentence that I never thought I would be able to say. I mean, really. I I don't, there, I I never get to a point where I take any of this for granted. Like, That was the wildest dream come true. And I hope it happens again. It was very brief. It wasn't this like, you know, we didn't have the the, the couch conversation, the super soul Sunday that I hope we have one day. But um, I got to interview her at the at, uh, the Wrinkle in Time mm. red carpet. Mm. And she held on to me. First of all, she said my name and I almost passed out. <laughs> and I'm like, her, her publicist probably just told her that right before she walked up to me. Nope. But she. Oh. No. No. I have, I have no doubt that Oprah was fully aware of like, oh, what? Fly black girls doing big things? A teen oh. vote? Go girl? Like, no doubt. She's what? in magazines. She knows. She knows what's up. But I, it's still, it, I mean, incredibly humbling to hear your name come out of Oprah's mouth. Oh, my God. And so she grabbed me like she does. You know how you know that Oprah grip, that death grip that she gives the people she's interviewing. And she, um, even though I was interviewing her, and she looked at me and she said, your only job only job is to listen. Mm. Just listen for the whisper. And I remember from watching Oprah, I'm an Oprah junkie through and through. I grew up on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I remember long, a long time ago, she said on her show, listen to the whisper before it comes a roar. And it stuck with me. And I believe that, I believe that there are all, there's always a whisper telling you the right way to go. Not that I entirely believe in right and wrong. I think we learn from the the, the, the hard stuff. Um, I don't really believe in mistakes, but I do believe that there's this dance that we do with life. And like when you can identify that voice that's your intuition or your, or your God or the universe or however you define it, man, life is fun. When you can operate in flow with the universe and catch that rhythm, like there's another, not to just keep throwing all these mantras, but there is another really meaningful kind of mantra that I picked up in meditation where this woman said to me, um, uh, when the music changes, so must your dance. And there is a music to life if you're listening to it. And there, there are times where the music changes and, and it's, and, and, and you feel clumsy. You're like, wait, but I was doing it this way for a long time. I had this dance down but then life calls you to a new beat, to a to new rhythm. You gotta and you gotta adjust, and you gotta learn the new dance moves. And I think when, as long as you remain open to and flexible and fluid, man, 
life can take you so many places you never, ever dreamed of. And I think that's what this book ultimately is about. I have so much more to do. I am certainly not done. And I'm not telling you I know everything. But this is what I know now. This is what I've learned to this point. This is my memoir so far. And I felt led to share this story. I felt led to go into some of the clumsier, harder, painful stuff. And also to share my why and my how behind the what it looks like. And and this is my offering. This is my offering. It's not up to me to determine or to predict or to try to control what people are going to think about it, what they're going to think about me. Like my job is to stay in flow. And I'm in flow. This book is literally my heartbeat and then I'm, I'm giving it to the world and then I'm going to move on. And there are a lot of other things that I'm going to do next. Um, but I'm proud of that thing. That is like, I'm really proud of that thing. And it took a lot out of me to get that done in this amount of time. But I feel like it was necessary work that I had to do that only I could do. And that's all we can do, right? Is like, that's the goal is do the work that only you can do that operate in your zone of genius and and just be true to, to your calling. So that's what that's what I did with that book. Last thing. Yeah. What's your superpower? Hmm. I can't believe you're turning on my question on me. <laughs> this is the question I ask y'all. <laughs> like really, it's in every interview that I, I ask people this. It's crazy uh, this, that I've this, never had this, to this really define up, it on the. Uh, this is every show. We ask people this question because I love the answers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why you're out here asking it because it's a great question. It's such a great question that I should ask myself more often. I think that my superpower is connection. I think that I'm able to figure out relatively quickly how to see someone and make them feel seen. Mm. Um, I think I have a gift of creating space for people to be who they are mm. um, and to be seen. And I think part of that is because I've been on a journey to really own all of who I am and to move through the world authentically. And I think by doing that, it gives permission to other people to do the same. There is a permanence to this that does not attend our articles, mm -hmm. certainly does not attend our tweets mm -hmm. and our IG posts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, your children will pick this up one day and check it out. And like... The, you know, my children have not read any of my books. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> and they are not interested in reading any of my books. But um, but this will last forever. Yeah. On your bookshelf, on other people's bookshelves. Yeah. It's really, you know, crazy thing. When There's you... a beauty in bookmaking, yeah, yes. that feels even more special today in this ephemeral world of social media where nothing lasts forever. And it's just one tweet to the next, one post to the next. But yeah, this short, is... tiny yes. stories. And There's here you're space. like, let me, let me take you back. Yeah. Let me tell you the whole story. Yeah. Like, I think that's powerful. Um, and I think it's, it's important. And I also think it's important to have more and more black and brown authors in the bookstore. 
Preach. So, yeah. I know. hope that I'm just one voice in a chorus of voices. And I hope that this book gives permission to other young aspiring black writers to just write the book. Write the book. There's space for it. There's a demand for it. There's an audience. Um, and I hope I'm just part of sort of proving that there's a market. And um, and you don't have to be 60, wealthy, you know, extraordinary, a mogul to have a story that's valid enough to be told. Right. And And I had to tell myself that through this process. I mean, my brother even over Christmas said to me, Dude, Elaine, why are you writing a why are you writing an autobiography? I love how your brother calls you dude. He's like, dude, yeah. And yeah, I like even at this point in my career, I mean, at this point in my career, he's like the only person who will just chop me down to size real fast and just be like, he's like, well, dude, why are you writing an autobiography? Isn't that like something old people do? Wow. Like, seriously. But you know, Elaine, but 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 is he older or younger brother? He's older than me. And he and he didn't mean it to be like hurtful. But, but he, he's but he's not understanding uh the history of black literature. Which is quite often your autobiography is the first book that you publish. And you may publish it in your 20s or your 30s or whatever. But, like, I had to tell my story. You know, my name is Richard Wright. My name is, uh, you know, Claude Brown. My name is whatever. You know, uh, you know I had to tell my story first um, mm-hmm. before I could tell you anything else. Oh, that's so powerful. That When you put it like that, when you put this book, you know... It, in this like larger trajectory of a black, black autobiography literary, the last yeah. 150 years. Oh my God. Thank you. I'm going to take oh that God. with me. Cause you I was should. like, my best comeback was in the moment. <laughs> they don't even call them autobiographies anymore. You <laughs> asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like burst into tears. So now I have a better, I can come back with some, some weight on this, but no, I, I, I think that's powerful when you put it into perspective like that. Um, and I, all, I I just think, like, listen, you don't have to be I, – I, to me, later I realized, I was like, that's the patriarchy talking. Mm. You don't see the value yet mm. in the voice of a young black woman, and that's okay. You're not my audience. I'm not speaking to you. And I do think that's rule number one. Like, write for your audience. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who get it, and then there are going to be some who don't. Don't worry about them. Thanks to Elaine for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torrey and on Instagram at Torrey Show. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Torrey Show is written by me, Torrey, and produced by Jackie Garofano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing person because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 